Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This past Wednesday, which we call Ash Wednesday, is the beginning of Lent. And it's a time, if you miss the Ash Wednesday service, if you're not familiar with the Ash Wednesday service, that you actually hear the words, if you come forward for the imposition of ashes, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Cheery thought. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know... If you came forward and I were to say, remember that you're mortal and you're going to die, you might be taken a little aback by that, right? But that's really what we're saying. Remember that you're dust and to dust you shall return. And in many ways, that is meant to be something that you think about during the season we set aside called Lent. But it's also interesting and quite a contrast that the word Lent means spring. And so you've got this whole notion and idea of the spring when you can see blossoms beginning to come. And especially today, I guarantee you, if you take a walk today after the week we've had, and it's in the 60s or even reach 70, you're going to see little blossoms starting to come to remind you that there's life coming. That there's going to be blossom and green leaves and flowers and it's going to be beautiful. At the same time that we're thinking about that we're going to die. That life is filled with contrasts. And the scriptures are filled with contrasts. That's what you have in the psalm. That's what you have in Jesus as he does his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that you see this contrast going on in Psalm 1, the two ways. And with Jesus, this whole idea of blessedness, and yet at the same time, the words that you read don't really make us think about being blessed, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You know, in a day when we all want to be tough in spirit, right? Blessed are you who mourn. Who wants to mourn? The next few aren't so bad, but then you get the blessed are those who revile and persecute you because you live for my name. That doesn't sound like a blessing to me. How about you? And yet, part of the reason is is that our whole idea of blessedness is colored by what we think we should have because of the world in which we live. And so there's this contrast going on. The contrast that exists during this season of Lent, this spring, with thinking about our own mortality, that we're heading towards Jesus dying on the cross between life and death. And hopefully that gets you thinking. It's one of the reasons why, you know, lots of people during the season of Lent, they want to remind themselves, Nathan talked about this on Ash Wednesday when he preached, 
They want to take on these disciplines, whether it be giving something up or taking something on, right? A lot of people give up chocolate. That's not a big deal for me. Not a big chocolate fan anyway. Alcohol, alcoholic beverages, desserts. I mean, those are the things that people tend to give up. Or they fast. Maybe they'll fast for one day. Maybe they'll fast for three days. Maybe they'll fast for the whole of Lent, like Jesus did, 40 days. Maybe they'll fast one meal. But people tend to look to these disciplines to remind us of our mortality, to also remind us that we have a need in ourselves. When we feel that pang, whatever that pang is, of temptation or wanting, that it's meant to draw us to the Lord. Sometimes people take things on, spiritual disciplines. You know, maybe they'll give a little more. Maybe they'll serve, volunteer a little more. Maybe they'll, they'll spend more time in prayer or in Bible reading. Well, every Lent, the last few years at St. Luke's, we take on, as a congregation, a Lenten discipline. I do a sermon series. And it's a dis- discipline for you to be able to sit there and listen to these longer sermons. <laughs> but we do these sermon series, and this particular year, I kept being drawn back to the Psalms, and I kept wrestling with, how do I do that? There's 150 Psalms. If I preached on all of them, we'd be here all of Lent every, for 40 days. But there's 150 psalms. That's about three years' worth of preaching. So I had to figure out how I was going to do that. So one of the ways that I decided to deal with all the psalms that we have is if you look in your uh, bulletin, you'll see this, a word about the psalms. Does everybody see that? It's in your bulletin insert. And I just decided to give you some uh, introduction to all of the Psalms, so you have an idea, because a lot of people, when they think about the Psalms, they think about David wrote the Psalms, or they think about Solomon maybe wrote the Psalms. And so I gave you all all the different authors of the Psalms. I gave you the types of Psalms. You need to recognize also that some of the Psalms have titles. Some of them are orphans because they don't have uh, an author. Some of them give you musical direction. And it shows you the variety that's in the Psalter, as it's called, or the Book of Psalms. You know, the one unfortunate thing is, at the end, it was, it was meant to say, my name, grow in wisdom and be blessed. And it me- meant to say, Greg Kranz. I think that, um, you know, Denise, when she was typing it, got, got so fixed on this name, He-Man, and she thought of me, so she just typed in He-Man. <laughs> I think that's what happened. Don't laugh, it's true. He-man the Ezraite, which means that he was in the era of Ezra. Okay, now a lot of people don't think about the Psalms during that era. So this is meant to give you just a primer on the Psalms because I'm inviting you not just to come on Sundays and hear this series on the Psalms, which I'll do the first four and then John Guest is going to come and do the last one, but that you also take on reading a Psalm or two every day during Lent. And you'll get through a great portion of the Psalter if you do that. And you'll become familiar with what, for the Jews, was their prayer book and their hymnal. And what, for the early church, actually, 
was the source of a lot of their prayers and their hymns and their songs that they would sing. And I worked for, in between college and seminary, I worked for Geneva College for a couple of years. Geneva College is an RPNA college. Most of you have no idea what that means. But it's a particular denomination. RPNA means Reformed Presbyterian of North America. And they have one quirk about them, themselves. And that is that in church, if you were to go to their worship service, they have no musical instruments. Everything is sung a cappella. And their hymn book is the book of Psalms. So that's just an interesting little tidbit of something I experienced when I would visit their chapel or when, when I would visit one of their churches. And that's how important it's actually been for many churches down through the centuries to weave in the Psalms. And in fact, for Jews and Christians alike being a source of hymns and Psalms. Look how many songs, modern day songs, are based on the hymns, which are based on the Psalms. It's amazing how those, those have all been a domino effect in producing much of the thoughts and much of the music that we use today in worship. And so it's a rich source. And it gives you different types. You can use it for growing in prayer. If you're struggling with something, you can use it for worship. There's so many different uses for the Psalms that I really invite you to maybe just look at the list that I gave you just to get an idea. And then maybe pick different kinds of psalms. You can get an idea from the titles if you have a Bible that has titles over the psalms. And just pick different ones out and get a feel for it. But it's really rich in helping us grow in our relationship and understanding of who God is and what God desires for us. What's also interesting is this first, this first psalm, Psalm 1, the focus is wisdom. It's actually two different ways, but the focus, the positive focus of Psalm 1 is wisdom. But what many people don't know is that the book of Psalms is found in the section of Scripture called the wisdom literature. There are different sections. Theologians refer to different sections of the Old Testament. The first five books are called the book the books of Moses or the book of Moses or it's called the law or it's called the Torah. That's the first five books. And then you've got the historical section. And then after the historical section, you've got the wisdom literature. You've got the book of Job and the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs and the book of the Song of Solomon and you've got Ecclesiastes, all of which are to direct us in wisdom, which is insight and character and how we grow and apply this to our lives, which is what wisdom is all about. So we're to grow in this wisdom. And these books, especially Proverbs, focuses on what is wisdom. And then you have the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. But that's the Old Testament, and this is right in the middle. Because after the law is given, which many people think the law is about practical living, how we're to live as as first Jews and then Christians. But really, our understanding of our faith is to go much deeper than that. Because as you grow in this knowledge of God's way through law, and you begin to walk with Him, and you grow and you learn how to live this life that you're talking about, you grow in wisdom. That's why many times we associate wisdom with old age, with white hair. 
Because even if you do it by trial and error, hopefully you learn, you grow. I mean, we do say of some people, they never grew up. You know what I mean? Well, there's an assumption that with maturity and with years, and as we stumble or struggle through life, or as we grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord and His Word, that we grow in this thing called wisdom. And so we're in the wisdom literature. And one other thing that I want to say about this whole idea of wisdom and growing in this wisdom, it's not a reward per se. If you do the right things, you're going to get a reward. You know how often we live that way and we think that way? If you do the right things, you're going to get a reward? No, this is if you walk in relationship to the Lord. If you grow in your knowledge and understanding of Him. If you grow in the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in operation in your life, there will be results. And this is what the results of that life will look like. This is what God wants for you. And ultimately, as you heard in Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as well as you see throughout the Old Testament, and the Psalms in particular, that we're to be blessed. And how many people misunderstand that term, that word, blessed? We'll get to that. I want you to actually turn in your Bibles, your pew Bibles, unless you brought your own. I want you to turn in the pew Bibles, not just the bulletin, First to page 479. In case you don't know where the Psalms are, this is where it begins. Page 479 in your pew Bible. Okay, you there yet? Okay, now coordination test. Keep your finger there. Turn to page 880 in your pew Bible. And keep both of them open. This might be a stretch for you to listen and do that all at the same time. But try to do it. Page 880 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5. There are the two readings in your bulletin, but I want you to actually have your Bible in your hand. Okay, is everybody there? Okay, notice how this psalm is titled. It's called Two Ways. There's that whole notion and idea of contrast. Two ways. In other words, you're given two ways to go. You know, and and let me just do it for you so visually you understand. You can either go toward the Lord, towards God's way. Or you can go this way, which is the way of the world, which you can describe as pleasing people or pleasing yourself. That's the two ways. And if you recognize it, they're in opposite direction. You're going to have your back on one and your face towards the other. That's the idea of two ways. It's also the idea of repentance, which is also a theme during Lent. But this notion and idea of two ways, you see... Not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but you see it throughout Jesus' first sermon, which is why I want you to have your Bible in your hand. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 13 of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, there's the contrast. Look at um, verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. There's another contrast. Verse 21, you've heard that it said... 
In ancient times, you shall not murder. But Jesus says, don't be angry. And then you go throughout that there's this contrast. You heard that it said outer actions. But what I say to you, inner motivation. What's your character? What is your sense of what God's trying to do in you? Because anybody can put on. Anybody can do the actions. That's why when you get to the end of Matthew 7, it says that Jesus spoke with authority and the scribes didn't. Why? Because he lived it. Because he embodied the Spirit in his life. He lived it. He was filled with the Spirit and the actions came out. So he wasn't aiming at the actions. He was aiming at loving his Father. At loving people around him. That's the contrast. So many people think it's about being a good person, you know? We love that idea. Being a good person. And if you try to self-will that being a good person, you'll fall short. Because we don't have the energy and we don't have the focus. Because we will be tempted to follow the world's way or our own hearts and desire. And that's why we're given this way, if you will, to follow the Lord. And this whole notion and idea, you see it later on in Psalm 1, this, this word prosperity. If you go to one of the other wisdom books, which is Proverbs, it's the one that really is most focused on wisdom. And you go to chapter 1, much like the, the book of Psalms, it lays it out in the first chapter. The verse is verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's, what's the writer trying to say? Fear. That we understand that we are mortal. We understand that we fall short, that we're sinners. We understand that we need God's mercy. That's fear. And then that fear moves on to awe, a different kind of fear. Where we want to worship the Lord, where we want to serve the Lord, where He becomes the focus and center of our lives. It's the beginning of wisdom. Interesting. And then you get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 tells you about the results. That you're going to experience peace. That you're going to experience prosperity. Maybe not the world's way of prospering, but prospering God's ways. That your life is going to be rich with the fruit of the Spirit. That your life is going to be rich with His presence. That your relationships, you're going to learn what it means to love in ways you could never imagine. The way of wisdom. That's what God is after in our lives. That there's a holiness to our lives. You know, that word is not popular today. And part of the reason is, is that we lose sight of what holiness is really all about. You know what we think of or what the world thinks of when we use the word holy? Holier than thou, right? Which is very condescending, I might add. Jesus was not that kind of holy. Jesus was a humble holy. Jesus was a holy that was willing to sacrifice and serve. Jesus was a holy that people saw him as a regular human being. Holiness is not you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Okay? 
That's not holiness. Holiness is living God's life in this world with flesh on like Jesus did. That's holiness. And that's what God is after with this whole notion and idea of growing in wisdom. Wisdom, God's way, is practical knowledge. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's where we take this knowledge of who God is and what God's will is for our lives. And because we meditate on His Word, that that Word penetrates our hearts and our lives and we're transformed. That we live this faith practically. It's not that we live this faith on Sunday in church and then forget it the rest of the week. That's not it. But this faith becomes a part of us because His Spirit fills us. You know, look at the words again of Psalm 1. The different words that are used here. And if you have a different translation, it might say different things, but verse 1, happy are those who do not follow, or another word, walk in the advice of the wicked, or take the path or the way of the sinner, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight, and they meditate. These words, if you think about it, have to do with your emotion, and have to do with your mind, and have to do with your will, and the use of your body. It's pervasive. It's like the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pervasive. Filling you to overflowing. So that this life, this spirit that's in you, comes out. And it comes out naturally. It's a byproduct of walking this walk. Look at the other way, the contrast. Look at the words that are used there. The first word I want to point out is the word sinners. The context here and the word here has to to do with missing the mark. It means that your life, by design, because of the way God created you, is to be aimed about living for Him. He is your goal. When you miss the mark, You're aiming at something else. You're aiming at living for yourself. You're aiming at living in the world's way, the world's mold, instead of living for Him. And then it goes on to use this term, wicked. Wicked is how we live. When we live apart from Him. That we begin about the world's way and the world's temptation and our own fleshly desires. And then it leads to being scornful or scoffing. Think about that. When we turn our back on the Lord, and if you've ever thought about a time in your life when you've done it, you, in your mind, almost ridicule the Christian way. You make fun of it. You put it down. And that's why Jesus says, those who ridicule you, those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. See, there's this progression from missing the mark with our lives, living into the sinful nature. And then we do it by having wicked acts. And then we begin to actually scoff at the Christian life. That's the movement. That's the other way. When God calls us back to Himself to live for Him, 
to have His Spirit fill our hearts and our lives. And so we need this sure foundation. Jesus talks about it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You can build your house on sand or you can build it on rock, the solid rock. The psalmist writes of being a tree rooted, grounded next to a stream of water. So it constantly has the water that it needs to grow. And what happens? It produces leaves and it produces fruit, which is what is supposed to happen. The water representing the streams of living water, the Holy Spirit that wells up inside us so that we can produce this green, this fruit for our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. Who knows best how we're supposed to live our lives but the one who made us? We need to go back to the very beginning. Back to the very beginning, you think about Adam and Eve, who created them, God. Who knows the best way for that to work? God does. He's the chief architect. He's the inventor. He's the creator. He knows how we work best. Go back to Adam and Eve. They had a choice, just like we have a choice. And they chose to want to be the center of the world themselves. You can be like God. And we all have the same choice. That's why Psalm 1 lays out, right at the very beginning, the two ways. Your choice. Which way do you want to choose? And Lent reminds us of that. This whole notion and idea of repentance where we can go towards God or we can go away from God. And it's our choice. The word that's used in the Beatitudes and the same word actually in the Hebrew that's translated a little differently in the psalm is happy or blessed. Now we have to be very, very careful with the word happy. You know that, right? Because so many people use my personal happiness, what I want, as an excuse to do whatever it is they want, right? I don't know how many of you saw this in the paper on Tuesday. This past week, there was an article about a local counselor, and I won't tell your name, but she she wrote a book, and the title of the article is True Happiness is Contagious. But let me tell you part of what we read here. We all want to be happy. That's right. Most people want to be happy. Not everybody understands what real happiness is all about. But she wrote a book in case you wanted to know how to get happy. The title is Get Happy, Get Happy, and create a kick-butt life. Doesn't that sound like a book you want to read? A creative toolbox to rapidly activate the life you desire. There's the key. The life you desire. Interesting. See how it's subtly shifted? Let me read on. She began focusing on positive psychology, also known as the study of happiness. Interesting. I want to study happiness. I don't think that would have gone over with my parents when I chose college. (laughs) Let me read you a couple other lines. Uh, She gives some of the guidelines. Accept and believe that you have a right to your emotional boundaries however you decide to define them. Now see, that can get very dangerous. 
Because the problem is, is that, well, I don't like being around people who are difficult for me to love. So my emotional boundary is I'm not going to be around them. I don't think Jesus said that. And yet how often we fall into that because we want to be happy. We have to be so, so careful that we don't confuse the happiness that's offered in the psalm, the blessedness that Jesus talks about, with the happiness that the world talks about. Because the happiness that the world talks about is oftentimes self-centeredness. It's oftentimes choosing the easiest path. It's oftentimes not about costly love, like Jesus showed. Trust your instincts. If something feels wrong for you and your gut, trust it and act upon it. I don't feel like obeying the law. Right? doesn't feel good to me. The article ends, I love it, good luck. Does that tell you anything? Good luck! It's interesting what's out there. You know, I think we all have that same temptation. It exists whether we're a Christian or not. Because as Christians, we're not exempt from temptation. We're not exempt from following our own desires or following the way of the world. It's a choice we make every day. It's a choice we make moment by moment. When my son Daniel was in high school and in college, we had to revisit this, by the way. Daniel was, Daniel was very, very headstrong. He gets it from his mother. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's a joke in our house, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> but I'll, I'll pay for it later. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is Daniel, I told Daniel this on several occasions, he had two gods competing for his life. One was the god of being cool and tough. And the other was the god, Jesus. And see, he thought a lot of times he could walk the fence. And what I told him is, you think the fence is like this and you can walk both ways at the same time. Here's the problem. The fence splits. And you're going to fall on one side or the other. When he got arrested the first time, we talked about it. When he got arrested the second time, jeopardizing, wanting to do what he's doing now, that's when he got serious and recommitted his life to Christ. Daniel was just accepted into special forces school, for those of you that don't know that. Just went through special forces assessment. He put that in jeopardy. It was his dream from when he was 13, right after 9-11. Because he was tempted by the other way. It's always there. We always have the choice. The two ways that existed during the book of Psalms exist today. 
Jesus inviting us to the blessed life that isn't easy. But we really come to understand God's blessing is there for all of us. And we have a choice. And that's what Lent is really all about, is laying before us, what do you want? What do you want? See, this word repentance that we talk about during Lent, let me put it to you another way. Let's think about the word transplanted. You're transplanted from the world, where your roots are deep in the ways of the world. And it's transplanted to the streams of living water, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that comes by focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are mortal and our, and our lives are hopeless in this life and for eternity unless we accept Him. Unless we're filled with the Spirit. Unless we seek to be transformed from the inside out and we grow in this wisdom that the psalm is talking about. We grow in this blessedness that Jesus promises. That's what he wants for your lives. And Lent gives you an opportunity to rethink that. Meditate on his word. Meditate where this this gift of scripture that can only be knowledge if we let it that when we meditate, we make it a part of our will. And we say, yes, Lord. I choose your way. Yes, Lord. I want to be filled and empowered by your Spirit. Please bow with me in prayer. On Ash Wednesday, part of the service reads, Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and resurrection, and it became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. I invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. Lord God, you have given us a great gift, the gift of free will, the gift to choose, that we are made in your image, and we are given this this power, this choice. And Lord, so often we run after the way of the world. So often we follow our own desires. And you invite us back again and again. Lord, help us this Lent to seek to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, the whole of our being. That when we walk, when we sit, when we meditate, our desires would all be focused on you. And Lord, we're not capable. That's why you sent your son. To die on the cross in our place for our sin. To be our model for what life is meant to be, what love is meant to look like. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we would build 
on that sure foundation, Jesus Christ. That you offer us the best building materials and a home that will last into eternity. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, that this Lent truly would be a holy Lent, that we would be set apart for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.